As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. As a teacher, one of the most important parts of a new school year is setting the tone for learning. We spend countless hours planning how to decorate and equip our room so our students feel comfortable and have everything they need. And know that this space is a serious space for learning and that they will be met with an equal measure of high expectations and care. I take meticulous note of where to seat students to eliminate potential distractions and yet to make the space feel collaborative. You see, teachers don't just worry about the curriculum and the pace of the lessons, which data I'll gather from each assessment to measure growth, though all of those things are important. As a teacher, I also care about your child's well-being. Will she be hungry? Stash some snacks in my desk drawer. Will he have access to highlighters? Better buy another pack. Will she need a winter coat? Let me see if I have one that I can pretend like I don't need any longer and ask if anyone would like it, knowing exactly who I want to take it. Will he need to hear an extra voice cheering from the stands? Better cancel my Friday night plans to be at the game instead. Those kids in the classroom each and every year become my kids. Yes, I know they're not mine to raise and I don't try to, but there also better not be anyone who talks badly of them because I will fiercely defend my kids. I will cry when they move on at the end of the year to start their adult lives in college because they're my kids. And I always find joy when they decide to pop back up and send messages to let me know that I made a difference in their lives because they're my kids. But what happens when there are events that I can't shield them from? On the first day of the 2002-2003 school year in Henry County, Virginia, at Figsboro Elementary School, teachers set up desks for the first day of school, including a desk for the fourth grade nine-year-old child who had already been missing for several days. I have no doubt that that teacher hoped and prayed for a miracle to see that added beaming face when school started. Unfortunately, that seat remained empty and the classroom buzzed with questions and with fear, a fear that the teacher couldn't protect her kids. From. This is the story of the Short family.
Welcome to Coffee and Cases, where we like our coffee hot and our cases cold. My name is Allison Williams. And my name is Maggie Dameron. We will be telling stories each week in the hopes that someone out there with any information concerning the cases will take those tips to law enforcement so justice and closure can be brought to these families. With each case, we encourage you to continue in the conversation on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, because, as we all know, conversation helps to keep the missing person in the public consciousness, helping keep their memories alive. So sit back, sip your coffee, and listen to what's brewing this week. Okay, Maggie, the short family who we're going to talk about this week consisted of Dad Michael, Mom Mary, Mm -hmm. and daughter Jennifer, and they lived just off of U.S. Route 220 in Oak Level, which, as I mentioned in the introduction, is in Henry County, Virginia. Okay, and Jennifer was in fourth grade, yes? Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. That's like my one of my most favorite ages in the classroom because they still want the teacher to love them, but they're independent enough. They're just so sweet at that age. Mm-hmm. And I think what makes that bond even more special, too, is that Oak Level was this very small community, fewer than a thousand people. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it is flanked to the north and to the south by large cities. So Roanoke, Virginia to the north and Greensboro, North Carolina to the south. The Schwartz address, 10820 Virginia Avenue, was just off a main thoroughfare, but it was still fairly rural. So while their home was near the Circle C convenience store and the Circle C motel, their nearest neighbor was a football field's distance away. I kind of like that, though. I like having people near me, but not right up in my face. Right. Yeah. You've got some room to breathe, basically. (laughs) Mary was Michael's second wife. 14 years her elder. He had previously been married and had three sons. However, after that marriage had ended, Michael and Mary had met and fallen in love. And on July 12th, 1993, Mary had given birth to Jennifer. Just out of curiosity, do we know, because that just made me curious, when you said he was 14 years older than her, Mm -hmm. what their ages were? So he was 41 and she was 27 when Mary gave birth to their daughter, Jennifer. Okay. And Jennifer's aunt, Carolyn, said of Jennifer in an interview with Fox 8 News, quote, she was a fun, loving child. She was a smart child and she loved her parents to death. Not one more than the other, but both equally, end quote. Oh, that is sweet. Mm Mm-hmm. And these three, Maggie, they were a tight trio. So while this is not the first place that you would find me, most of the residents who knew the shorts would see them working together in the yard. Oh, yeah, I would have hives, but, you know, I'm (laughs) jealous of you guys. Right. You might be out there anyway, just in your long sleeves and, you know jeans. Neighbor Ruby Emerson told the freelance star newspaper, quote, they were always outdoors together in the yard, mowing the grass or whatever. They seemed as happy as could be, end quote. And the three loved being in each other's company. They were a little bit more 
reserved, I think, as a family, yet they were still kind with all of their neighbors. I kind of got the sense when I was doing my research that they were one of those families for whom most people knew of them, but only few Mm. had kind of a deeply personal relationship with them. Yeah. I mean, that's not a a bad thing, though. Oh, no. To just kind of keep to yourself. They were a family of modest means um, who, like I just said, they kind of kept to themselves most of the time. And while it was just the three of them in the home, they did have a larger extended family, courtesy of Michael's sons from his first marriage. Neighbor Ray Reynolds told WFMY News 2 of Michael... Quote, I would see him out in the community. The little girl was always at the store playing. She'd run from the house to the store and back and forth. You would always see her, end quote. So like I mentioned, the shorts lived near that Circle C convenience store gas station. Mm-hmm. And Jennifer is said to have made friends with the owner. So she would often stop in for snacks or just, you know, go inside to pay for her parents' gas. So she was a familiar face in that gas station. In 2002, Michael owned MS Mobile Home Movers business and Mary, his wife, worked for him. So Michael had named the business after himself. MS stood for Michael Short. And basically, as the name of his company implies, if somebody moved and they needed their mobile home moved as well, well, that's where Michael would step in. So MS Mobile Home Movers. Honestly, if I had a business like that, I would name it after myself as well. So (laughs) kudos to Michael. Yeah. If you've ever seen those oversized load trucks going down the interstate, Mm -hmm. that's in a nutshell what Michael did. Okay. But one of Michael's trucks needed repair. And he was also needing to replace another truck. So in August of 2002, yes, he was needing to put in the money to make those necessary purchases and repairs. And that was going to put a financial strain on him, on his business and on his family. Plus, you know, I'm guessing that it's not every day that someone moves and Mm -hmm. wants to take a home with them. I mean, it'd be my guess Mm -hmm. that. It's far more common to sell the property with the mobile home included and then purchase a new home wherever somebody moves to. I would guess that's more common. And I'm wondering if he limited limited himself to just mobile homes or if he also maybe moved big machinery or, you know, I've seen those carrying the like huge dump trucks mm-hmm. for the transportation mm-hmm. department. So I'm wondering if maybe he did some of that on the side. I'm not sure. From my understanding, it was just mobile homes, but he may have. Oh, okay. So briefly, due to those business woes, Michael had actually begun considering moving the business to South Carolina since he had made several contacts there. And he was thinking, you know, maybe if I move to a new area, the company might be able to thrive again. So in the meantime, to save money, since Michael had a, a trailer, a mobile home of his own that they weren't using, mm-hmm. he decided to put the family home on the market with a plan to, when it sold, live temporarily in that mobile home before making the move and kind of uprooting his family to replant that family in South Carolina. 
So the shorts okay. had a couple of open houses, but either the house wasn't selling quickly or maybe Michael wasn't as motivated to sell as he said he was. But all the while, they kept the mm-hmm. home looking like a show home just in case the real estate agent would contact them and want to show it, which kudos to them because my home looks like a disaster area if that's what you want your house to look like. And that's really hard to do because when Anthony and I moved into the house we're in now, like Mm -hmm. two years ago, we had to do that for a few days. And it's like every, which I guess is a good habit to get in. But, you know, every time you dirty a dish, you immediately have to clean it, dry it, put it away. I was vacuuming all the time because, you know, we have all of our dogs. So they shed constantly. So it was a lot of work. So kudos to them. On August 14th, 2002, Michael was working late alongside his employee, Chris Thompson, who had been staying at a hotel down the road from Michael's home. They had actually been working on that truck that needed repair, Mm -hmm. and they had been making those repairs until a little before 11 p.m. on the 14th. They made plans before they parted ways for Chris to come back by the short home the next morning so he and Michael could ride together to go pick up a new truck for Michael's business. They were going to pick the truck up in the town of Christiansburg, which was about an hour away. Also sometime around 11 p.m., the Short family finally, finally picked up a very late dinner from the Burger King drive through in Collinsville. So there's somebody who says, well, you know, they came through here. That's pretty late, but it is during the summer, so it's not like Jennifer has school the next day or anything like that. And sometimes life just gets in the way of dinner. Sometimes we're eating dinner at like 930. I'm like, this right. is not healthy, but... Right. Here Here we are. Here's your hamburger. (laughs) Yes. Eat it. A little before 9 a.m. the next morning on August 15th, 2002, Chris showed up at the short home to meet up with Michael, you know, obviously, again, to get the new truck. As he walked up to the home, Chris found it weird that Michael didn't come outside to greet him. He didn't see Michael or see any sign of activity anywhere. So it was almost like nobody's awake yet. But the garage, the home's garage door stood wide open. So Chris walked up and as he got closer, he still didn't see Michael come out. So Chris probably thought, you know, I'll just quickly peek ahead in, let Michael know that I'm here, you know, no rush, but I'm ready whenever Mm -hmm. you are. Because sometimes Michael could get caught up in working on things in the garage and he would get preoccupied. So maybe Christopher's thinking, oh, he's probably, you know, piddling with something and just lost track of time. Yeah, it sounds like he knows Michael's family enough Mm -hmm. that he would feel comfortable just like, you know, opening the door and saying, hey, I'm here whenever you're ready. Exactly. Exactly. Michael Short was indeed in the attached garage. Chris saw him on the couch deep in the garage when he entered. So it appeared like Michael was still sleeping on the sofa. However, Michael wasn't sleeping. He had been shot a single time in the head with a twenty-two caliber gun, execution style. Chris Thompson immediately called the Henry County Sheriff's Office out to the scene. 
When law enforcement arrived, they searched the rest of the home, and that's when they also discovered the body of 36-year-old Mary Short in the bed. She had also suffered from a single gunshot wound to the head, again, execution style. Hmm. Law enforcement quickly entered Jennifer's bedroom, only to find it empty. It was obvious that Jennifer had been in bed because the mattress was pushed away from the wall about two inches. The covers were thrown back as though someone had done so to get out of bed, and Jennifer's pillow was on the ground. But other than that small dishevelment in Jennifer's bedroom, the rest of the house still looked immaculate and showed no sign of struggle. This is odd. Very Mm -hmm. odd circumstances. Mm -hmm. With both parents deceased and no sign of their child, law enforcement's initial thought was that perhaps Jennifer had been awoken by the shooting in the garage and then in her parents' bedroom, and that maybe she had been able to sneak out of the house with plans to return after the intruder had left. That's what I initially thought, too, but then Mm -hmm. I remembered the intro, and I was like, meh, that's wrong. Right, yeah, so they're thinking, okay, well, maybe maybe she's in the woods surrounding the home. She's hiding, and she's terrified, so police Mm -hmm. begin to search those woods for Jennifer and to place phone calls to all of Michael and Mary's friends and family to see if any of them knew where Jennifer might be. Like, if she were to run into the woods, where would she go, right, or where would she hide? Mm Mm-hmm. As the hours ticked by, though, and Jennifer didn't return to the home, law enforcement were forced to accept the fact that she, too, had likely met with foul play. Since they couldn't locate her in the immediate vicinity by the afternoon of the 15th, with no further clues as to her whereabouts, police issued an Amber Alert for Jennifer. So the logistics of the Amber Alert actually showed how little law enforcement knew about when the crime had occurred. I mean, they didn't even know what Jennifer was wearing or who she could possibly be with. So this is more of just a, here's this child yeah, kind of a thing. Has anybody seen that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you think about it, you know, the last that the Short family had been seen was around 11 p.m. before being found dead the next mm-hmm. morning around 9 a.m. And that's about all they knew. So they're thinking, okay, well, did the attacker enter the home just shortly after they'd gotten back from dinner and settled into bed? Or had the killer committed the crime just before Chris Thompson had arrived to pick Michael up the next morning? I mean, it could be anywhere in that time frame. So to account for any possible scenario in that time frame, the Amber Alert was actually set to cover an extremely wide range, so hundreds of miles, because they're thinking, okay, if somebody took her, they could have taken her at midnight Mm -hmm. last night versus 8 o'clock this morning. Mm -hmm. News outlets soon covered the story as well, and Jennifer's face was featured on national channels calling for the immediate return of the sweet young girl. Still worried that she could be in the surrounding woods somewhere and potentially lost. Like, what if she went out there and she just didn't come back because she got, you know, twisted and turned around and she doesn't know where she is? 
So over the course of several days, police carried out searches with volunteers from the community and family to aid in those searches. They brought in ATVs and horses to search the more inaccessible terrain. They brought in canine units and they flew a helicopter overhead. They searched local bodies of water as well as the nearby Circle C Motel for clues, but still no Jennifer nor even a single sign as to where she might be. So the scent dogs, they did actually hit on Jennifer's scent, but they hit on her scent at her home, at the Circle C convenience store, and at the Circle C motel. But police didn't think any of these hits were significant since Jennifer was known to frequent all three of those places almost daily. You know, but... I don't know, obviously, anything about this Circle C Motel, but I'm just wondering if it's in such a small town and it's in between, you know, the two larger towns, what type of person it attracts, this Circle C Motel, and was she potentially exposed to some pretty dangerous people by her frequenting this Circle C Motel? So from what I've read, there were some seedy characters there. Okay. Um, but for some reason, I mean, even though the dogs hid on her scent there, police were like, mm, it's probably just nah. because it's so close to her home. She walked by it every day, you know, and didn't really yeah. put much, you know, thought, I guess, into that hit. But the search for Jennifer was paramount to law enforcement. And I'm sure at this point they're thinking, if we can find Jennifer, then that means we can find the killer if the killer has abducted her. Or mm -hmm. if she's out there still hiding and she's lost, we would at least have more details when we find her about the timing or potentially what the suspect looks like. And I want you to imagine what this small town law enforcement agency is facing here. They likely only handled small crimes like a small town normally does. So traffic tickets, maybe some vandalism, some domestic disputes. Yeah. But homicide. Yeah. Rooted. Yeah. Right. But homicide would normally be a crime reserved for larger cities, let alone a double homicide. And on top of and the killing, a yeah, child, exactly. Yep. On top of the killing of both Michael and Mary Short, they have that added crime of a child abduction. So the manpower required for the handling of even one of those crimes had to be more than the small town could handle. Hopefully, though, they asked for help, especially with a child missing. Doesn't larger agencies usually get involved in those circumstances? Yes, they do. And luckily, unlike so many of the cases that we cover each week on the show, this small town agency did have the wherewithal to request help in their investigation. Good. Throughout the course of this investigation, as you're going to see, law enforcement have been intentionally vague and strategic in their release of information, though, to the public. Oh, that's good. To illustrate, initially, they were vague about what evidence they had collected from the home. And they were vague because Jennifer was still missing. So they were concerned, you know, that if the person who had abducted her 
knew what the police had in terms of evidence or believed that they were the police were hot on their trail, then they might be more inclined to harm Jennifer. So they're like, let's not reveal what we've collected. Now, years after the crime, we have more information about some of that evidence. So here is what law enforcement were able to find that we know now. Based upon the position of the bodies and no sign of struggle, it appears as though the couple had been taken completely unaware of the attack on their lives. Since, as I indicated earlier, both of them had been shot execution style, that told police that this was not a murder-suicide. We can rule that out. Both Mm -hmm. Michael and Mary had been killed with a single shot by a twenty-two caliber gun. The assumption of police is that Michael, since he was sleeping in the garage, was likely killed first and that Mary had slept through the shooting of her husband, making her completely unaware also when they then came for her. But I honestly question many things about the scenario. So before I tell you my questions, I will tell you that it wasn't from my research, necessarily odd that Michael was sleeping in the garage on the couch. And it wasn't... That was one of my questions. Yeah. It it wasn't because he had been, like, sentenced there by Mary because of a squabble or anything like that. Michael would frequently sleep on the sofa there if, number one, he had fallen asleep while watching television out there. That happens Mm -hmm. to me all the time, by the way. I mean, I can be wide awake watching a show and then poof into dreamland (laughs) i mean a split second so when that would happen for michael instead of when he finally did wake up going in climbing into bed waking mary up he would just sleep out there on the sofa for the rest of the night and he would also commonly sleep there because number two he snored loudly Hmm. and Mary was a light sleeper so sometimes for Mary's sake Michael would sleep out there okay see I too am a a very very light sleeper I think that must be a woman thing I don't know but Anthony snores like a NASCAR speedway (laughs) like it is so loud i have to sleep with noise canceling earphones in which is not healthy for your ears to do that every night by the way but there are some nights even with these in and we have a bed that can tilt you up so that you're on like a position that's supposed to prevent snoring but it doesn't work combination of those two things (laughs) mm -mm. and sometimes i'll take my happy butt out to the couch just so i can sleep yeah so i understand (laughs) I understand. You understand where Mary's coming from. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. while that detail can be explained, right, those are some legitimate reasons. Mm -hmm. There are several details that conversely create more questions than answers. My first question, why was the garage door open? So now, I don't think he would sleep with it open, but it was summer, so maybe right. he just needed a nice little breeze while he was sleeping. And they don't have a lot of neighbors. 
Right. And that and that could be it. I mean, we don't we don't know if the garage door had been left open when Michael went to bed or if the killer had opened the garage door maybe when leaving. So did he simply fall asleep on the couch with the door up either that night or the next morning, maybe wanting to get, like you said, Maggie, a little summer night breeze or morning breeze. And then the killer had come in with that night or morning air. I mean, in my mind, the other scenario doesn't fit, that the killer would have opened it while leaving. That's something that's proposed by Mm -hmm. a lot of people. But I could be wrong, but I feel like a garage door opening would be a lot of unwanted noise drawing attention to the house that, you know, someone Mm -hmm. had just murdered multiple people wouldn't necessarily want. Mm -hmm. You know, because yeah, it would draw attention. Our garage door is loud. Ours is too. So, yeah, I understand that pushing a button to exit could be done by hitting the button with an elbow or with an object. You know, you could avoid the kind of DNA leaving act of grabbing and twisting a doorknob. Mm-hmm. I get it. And I understand that as a motivation, but I still think that the sound and the lights of a garage door Mm -hmm. because we have a light that turns on when the garage door opens. I feel like that would make that option of escape undesirable for a perpetrator. Maybe they never, so they get their hamburger from Burger King. They come home. Perhaps they just forgot to close the garage door. And then, you know, like you said, he's out there watching TV and he just kind of slips off without waking up to go close the garage door. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, how many times I d- I'll do this, I'll sit down, let's say, you know, at my desk at work, and I'm like, oh, I didn't grab those copies from the copier. Mm-hmm. I'll go do it in just mm-hmm. a few minutes. I don't feel like getting back up. And then you get distracted, and then mm-hmm. you never go get the copies off the copier. Is it a possibility... Or do we know, could the killer have been in the house waiting for them? Is that a possibility? And so they really just didn't have time to close the garage door? I mean, I guess it... maybe he kills Mary first and then Michael after that? It is a possibility. Yeah. But then the person who's inside already either opened that garage door to leave or... It's just happy coincidence for the perpetrator that the door was left open. Mm -hmm. But I will say that if the killer did leave through the garage door by opening it himself and they only left it open at that point, then that means he did enter some other way. So either was already hiding in the house, Mm -hmm. so had a point of access. I don't know how... Um, religious they were about locking their windows and doors when they weren't home, you know, but with no Mm -hmm. sign of forced entry, then either they didn't have it locked up and the person was able to easily get in or they were let in because it would seem Mm -hmm. to indicate that the short family knew their killer, you know, obviously versus the theory that the door had Mm -hmm. been inadvertently left open by Michael falling asleep, which then means that the killer could have been anyone. So who opened the garage door does seem to be an important question. The second detail that leads to questions 
is that the phone lines to the house had been cut. Mm. Hmm. And that small detail tells me that the killer went to the home with the intent to kill. Oh yes. So it's the premeditated. Murder- oh, for ab- sure. absolutely. And and you know, sleuth hounds out there, you might be thinking, well, obviously, Allison, you didn't have to be a genius to figure that one out, right? <laughs> that you know, the phone lines being cut shows that they went there with an intent to kill. But I want you to stop for a second and realize just how significant that tiny detail really is because it tells us that their murders were not committed in the heat of passion, which means that if they catch this perpetrator, then that that perpetrator can't give an excuse of, oh, well, we had an argument and, you know, it it blew up into something Mm -hmm. that I didn't intend because the phone lines being cut shows you did intend it, you know, Mm -hmm. and This was someone who had, it seems, long since targeted them for the crime because cutting the phone lines is a very calculated move. Yeah, I wouldn't even know how to begin to do that. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't. Like, I just don't know where you would even begin to do that, but, you know. I mean, I, I guess if you've got the telephone lines above ground, then you could kind of see where the pole comes into the house. Because I was thinking about that. Because I was thinking, is this guy like walking around the perimeter of the house with a flashlight looking yeah. for the phone lines to be able mm-hmm. to cut it? And then I was That's like, I was thinking wait, too. Allison, maybe, you know, if there's a pole, then you'd be able to see kind of where they come in. But I wouldn't even know what to cut. Yeah. Cut them all. Either. I mean, I, I, I don't know. So then you start thinking, okay. If we see this calculated detail, then what kind of perpetrator would conduct a calculated murder? Mm -hmm. You think, you know, did they make somebody mad? Had somebody been watching them and canvassing the house? You know, because they were either cutting the lines because Mm -hmm. he, you know, so that he would have time to do what he needed or to have plenty of time for escape. Were the phone lines cut because the killer knew where the phones were in the home and the likelihood that Mary or Jennifer could get to one of them if they did wake up, right, if if Michael shot first? And if so, then that mm-hmm. would mean that they had been in the home before. See, I'm wondering if it almost has to be someone closer to them because you said earlier that they kind of kept to themselves and that Mm -hmm. very few people were kind of let into their inner circle Mm -hmm. and so i'm wondering if it was someone that they knew right because then they would know all those things like Mm -hmm. where the phone lines were what time they typically went to bed they could be Mm -hmm. let in without Mm -hmm. it being weird Mm -hmm. and you know i don't that detail of the phone lines too I think it says all those things that you're saying. Absolutely. I think it also seems to indicate that this was not a first time perpetrator or even a young one for Mm -hmm. that matter, because I don't think a first time perpetrator or a young perpetrator would necessarily think to cut phone lines. Yeah. I mean, I feel like Unless the act saw a movie or something. Or, like that. Well, that's true. Yeah, I feel like the act of of cutting the phone lines tells much more than the act of not doing it would. Mm-hmm. 
But it's the manner of Michael and Mary's deaths that cause the most questions for me, especially in light of the elements that we just talked about. So my primary question is how Michael could have been shot and no one woke up. Mm -hmm. So I get that different caliber weapons when shot create different decibels of sound. But a gunshot is a gunshot. And the couple's bedroom was not that far away from where Michael was sleeping on the couch. Can you put something on a twenty-two that makes the shot quieter? You can. Like yeah. You can put suppression on it that would quieten it. But it's still in my mind, would be too loud. I mean, I could be wrong. I know that a twenty-two is one of the quieter guns on the market. A shot from it, according to my research, is between 120 and 140 decibels. So to put that into perspective, everyday conversation is around 60 decibels. Okay, so now I have another question. Mm -hmm. I wonder what the decibels are for someone snoring because if she's a light sleeper and his snoring wakes mm. her up then surely a gunshot would have woken her up apparently the decibels for snoring are between 50 and 65 but it can reach in the range of 80 or 90 which matches the decibel levels of a vacuum cleaner so it can get up so to then, 80 yeah, or 90. She definitely would have been woken up by that. That's what like I'm twice thinking too. And and I feel like when all the different sources that I looked up when they're giving a comparison, they compared the shot of a 22 to the decibels of an everyday conversation, but I feel like those two statistics when they're given together paints a false picture because I feel like when you look at them side by side without understanding decibels it almost makes it seem as though, oh, 60 to 120, that's not that loud. You know, if the television were loud enough, then maybe the gunshot might have been mistaken for a sound mm. emitting from the television. And, you know, therefore, maybe something that Mary would have slept through. But I did want to add this final statistic, too, to kind of give a reality check. So if you remember, a 22 is between 120 and 140 decibels. An ambulance siren is 125 decibels. Oh, and those are loud. You hear mm -hmm. those at pretty far distances when you're driving. Oh, yeah. If you're at a red light, even if you have your radio blaring, you can still hear the mm -hmm. ambulance coming long before you even know where the sound is coming from. A jackhammer is 130 decibels. Huh. And if you're right, if she's a yeah. light sleeper and she's waking up to snoring, then a gunshot would definitely mm -hmm. wake somebody up. Now, I started thinking, okay, well, she's found as though she was asleep. So then I'm thinking, well, could the shot, because there was only one, maybe have startled Mary from her sleep and then, you know, sitting in the darkness, not knowing what woke her up and then hearing nothing follow the sound. Could she have gone back to sleep or at least been in the process of attempting to? And I do think that that's a possibility. Yeah, that is a possibility. Mm -hmm. But then that means that the killer was willing to stay in the house long enough for her to go back to sleep. 
which I think it tells something else about the psyche. I think it also makes sense that Michael would have been killed first because he would have posed the biggest threat in terms of physicality. Oh, definitely. And the killer then entered the home to kill Mary. But again, I feel like we need to pause here to really examine what those actions tell us. So first, the cup phone lines, to me anyway, indicate that the killer either knew the layout of the home and the proximity of the phone to the victims or believed that the crime would take some time. The ability to take Mary unawares after killing Michael meant that, again, in my mind, either the killer knew the layout of the home, so were able to navigate through the house quickly to where he wanted to go without knocking things over in the dark, right? Because it's not like you can turn a light on and take somebody unawares. Right. Or that the perpetrator believed, again, that this crime is going to take some time and they're willing to, like I said a second ago, kind of wait in the home, giving Mary time to fall back asleep after potentially waking to the sound of the gunshot. And either option is very creepy to me. Which could also explain why the phone lines were cut. They probably did that beforehand, thinking, well, I'm going to kill Michael first. If she were to wake up, then she would maybe call 911. If I cut the phone line, she won't have the chance to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I feel like even the act of entering the home after killing Michael tells us something about the psyche and or the motivation of yeah. the perpetrator. I wonder if this person has ever been the killer in this case has ever been like you know how the fbi can do those profiles Mm -hmm. i would be interested to say what they say about this person because if it was just against michael then boom you kill michael you're done exactly but obviously it wasn't just michael yeah exactly because yeah you're right i mean if if it were just about michael he would have killed him in the garage and then fled through a potentially Mm -hmm. already open garage door and never have needed to enter the home because of what actually happened i refuse to believe that it was solely due to some personal grudge with michael alone or i feel like it would have ended right there i think it was they were specifically targeting jennifer oh we're gonna talk about that because because she's the only one that isn't in Mm -hmm. the house yeah a lot of people think that same thing so we'll come back to that um another Detail I think about the manner of death that gives me pause is, again, I keep going back to it, like the phone lines, how calculated the deaths seem. So this wasn't Mm -hmm. a messy crime scene of struggle. It doesn't seem to me as though the crime was so deeply personal that the killer wanted to see Michael and Mary suffer. Instead, they Mm -hmm. were shot in their sleep. With a single shot. So an act that to me seems more like one committed by a stranger rather than someone with a close personal relationship to the victims who felt, you know, some deep anger toward them. Yeah. You know, so I'm struggling to make the details add up. I wonder if it could, again, if it is about Jennifer, even be someone who felt remorse in having to kill Michael and Mary. And that's why the deaths were 
um, this is a horrible word, but more merciful. Mm-hmm. It could be. I I don't I don't know. I think that is a likely possibility. So we're going to get to potential motives here in just a minute. But before we get to that, Maggie, I did want to tell you what a thorough job law enforcement did with the crime scene in this case. They collected anything and everything that even had a remote possibility of containing DNA. That's awesome. They had 22 shell casings, one from the garage by Michael and one that was found in the bed next to Mary. Other weapons and ammo that were found in the home. Items related to Michael's business like his checkbook, a computer disc, documents taken from a briefcase, though we don't know what those documents are. They've never clarified and $600 in cash and a blank check that had just been lying on the kitchen counter, which obviously rules out some motives for mm-hmm. us right there. Because Do we know if the gun was Michael's gun? From what I understand, it was not one of his guns. Okay. Um, but, you know, to think somebody's going to come in and do this and then just leave $600 that was lying there in plain sight. That's bizarre. Yeah, along with Dory, I'm sure Mary had. Mm-hmm. According to television coverage of the case, the evidence log also mentioned potential fingerprints and or hair collected that belonged to an unknown person. One source hmm. said there had been a note collected from the kitchen table, though I wasn't able to find that corroborated anywhere, nor to find any indication as to the content of the note. But it just mentioned, one source mentioned that there was a note. There were also early hmm. reports of a partial fingerprint writing on a window. Like, you remember when you were a kid and you'd like <sighs> fog up the window and write on it? Uh-huh. Like that kind of a writing on a window that read, and again, this is only partially, I'm glad to see. Hmm. But again, I wasn't able to corroborate that detail, but that was in early reports about the case. An article in the Roanoke Times that was published on August 22nd added one additional piece of information about the evidence, that there was a voice message on the answering machine that had been collected and sent to the FBI that purportedly contained an obscene message. So had someone threatened the family or been harassing them? But again... Like the threats and the harassing, I just don't know if that necessarily fits with the calculated cutting the phone lines, mm-hmm. execution style, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Police have said that in total, they collected more than 100 pieces of evidence. Captain Wayne Davis of the Henry County Sheriff's Office actually said as recently as August of 2022, so this year, that there were upwards of a thousand pieces of evidence collected. They fingerprinted everything, even the walls of the home. So basically, they knew that if DNA technology continued to improve, that they wanted to make sure to collect everything that they could that would help them ID the perpetrator in the future, even if they couldn't do it now. The other good news amidst all this tragedy was that there was still hope 
for them that Jennifer was alive out there somewhere. The sheriff even went so far as to say that there was no indication from the investigation of the scene that Jennifer had been seriously injured during the murder of her parents. So that day at the crime scene, a detective told the press, quote, we presume that she was kidnapped, abducted from her own home after her parents were killed and taken against her will, end quote. Do we find out what happens to her? We do. But the days passed with no answers. On August 23rd, 2002, Michael and Mary's funeral was held. Imagine how hard this funeral was on the short mm-hmm. family to lose so many people at once and with Jennifer. Yeah, and Jennifer still is still missing. Mm-hmm. To me, it reminded me of the investor murders that we covered where you've got mm-hmm. like a whole family killed. Yeah. And imagine the community. This is oh. a tiny community. Yes. Yeah. I'm sure they were shook. Mm-hmm. Carolyn Short, Jennifer's aunt, said, quote, It's one thing to lose one or to lose a child. But when you lose a whole family, that's a lot. End quote. Mm-hmm. And then to know on top of that, that Carolyn learned about the murder of her brother, Michael, and sister-in-law, Mary, from watching the news and not directly from law enforcement. And that is heartbreaking. Yes, it is. So, I yes, mean, it's it it's not as though law enforcement did everything correctly in this case because they, they didn't. However, in a what I think was a brilliant move... Law enforcement, since they were still no closer to identifying the perpetrator, actually decided to record the funeral. So that way, if anybody oh. came mm-hmm, who's acting suspicious or who nobody yeah, else because typically they know, do kind of stick around, mm-hmm, yeah, then it would be captured on film. But unfortunately, though a brilliant idea and plan, nothing that they saw in the recording gave them pause in terms mm-hmm. of the attendees or the activity. On the contrary, there was activity by the police that gave the public pause that happened less than two weeks after the funeral on September 4th, 2002. Authorities exhumed Michael Short's body for further testing. Henry County Sheriff H.F. Cassell insinuated that the only reason for the exhumation was to get hair samples from Michael that should have been collected during the autopsy but weren't. That may indeed be true, but it led many people to wonder why hair samples would be so significant to the investigation that they would be willing to put the family through that trauma again. The rumor mill ran rampant with the action, though, that many locals were speculating that the hair sample was taken to see if Michael Short were truly Jennifer Short's father. And this was a rumor that the sheriff didn't really confirm nor deny. Because that could potentially be a motive for someone. Mm -hmm. Especially since she's been kidnapped. Yep. Because we know that 
parents are responsible for kidnappings of children and something as astronomical as 90% of kidnapping cases. So that theory Mm. makes sense. So if Michael were not Jennifer's father, then perhaps the real father was out there somewhere and had killed Michael and Mary to get Jennifer back. So the only silver lining of of this theory would be that Jennifer would hopefully still be alive. Small little fact about my little sleuth hound and me, we could live on smoothies. My girl makes one every morning for breakfast to take on the bus, and sometimes she treats me by making me one too that I can bring to work. But the clunky blender was always a pain. Lug it out, get it to blend, waking up the whole house in the process, wash it afterwards, leave it sitting on the counter to dry, and then go through the hassle of putting it away just to do the same thing the next morning. Now, with the BlendJet 2 portable blender, the process has been so much easier. The BlendJet 2 is portable, so you can blend up a smoothie at work, you could do a protein shake at the gym, or even a margarita on the beach. It's small enough to fit in a cup holder, but powerful enough to blast through those ingredients like ice cream or ice or frozen fruit with ease. Blendjet 2 is whisper quiet, so you can make your morning smoothies without waking up the whole house. It lasts for 15 plus blends and recharges quickly via a USB-C. And the best thing is that the Blendjet 2 cleans itself. Just blend water with a drop of soap and you're good to go, which I think is amazing. With more than 30 cute colors and patterns to choose from, there's a Blendjet 2 to complement any style. And I am rocking the seafoam color for myself. So what are you waiting for? If you go to Blendjet.com, you can grab yours today. And be sure to use the promo code COFFEEINCASES12 to get 12% off your order. And this is a biggie at Christmas, free two-day shipping. No other portable blender on the market comes to the quality, power, and innovation of the Blendjet 2. They guarantee you'll love it. We do too. Or you get your money back. If you have a smoothie lover in your life, you want to make that New Year's resolution to build muscle and lose fat, whatever the reason, blend anytime, anywhere with the BlendJet 2 Portable Blender. So go to BlendJet.com and use the code COFFEEINCASES12, all one word, all lowercase, to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. Shop today by going to the link or clicking the link in our show notes and get the best deal ever. Since Allison and I don't work together anymore, recording our podcast became harder until we found Zencaster. Zencaster is podcast recording the way it should be, web-based and as easy as creating a link and clicking to join a recording session. If you've been listening to our show for any extended period of time, you know our love for Zencaster and their products. Now, with Zencaster Professional, there's even more to love. Zencaster records video up to 4K. Post-production allows you to balance volumes and reduce background noise in one click. Filler word removal takes out all the ums and ahs that happen in natural speech. And you can now also add your brand's watermark to your work. 
For the podcaster, the production of an episode is simple from start to finish. Recording local audio, inserting pre-recorded audio clips like intro music and ads, and even publishing the episode or setting it to post at a future date and time. It's even easy for guests who aren't tech savvy and you can add up to 11 separate participants. Go to Zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use our code coffee and cases, all one word. You'll get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. We want you to have the same easy experience we do for all our podcasts podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. So sadly, Maggie, six weeks after the murder on September 25th, 2002, 30 miles away in Rockingham County, North Carolina, Lisa Albert Vaughn and her son were at her father's house off of Grogan Road. Her son had been walking around his grandfather Eddie Albert's yard when he found a child's tennis shoe. It wasn't initially alarming because Lisa's father's dogs were known to kind of bring home or dig up random items and then just leave them in the yard. In fact, a few days after the tennis shoes, there was what looked like a wig That was thrown away. I mean, they saw this and they're like, oh, a wig. So they just threw it away. And then a few days before the shoe, Lisa had found some teeth at the end of the driveway. Yeah. When she was washing her car and her dad explained that, you know, it was probably teeth from a deer or some other animal carcass that the dogs had again brought home. But when the dogs were then seen playing with what Lisa first thought was a turtle shell, but upon mm. closer look appeared to be a partial skull. She called up a friend who worked in law enforcement to verify. Okay. Was the wig actually a wig or was that the hair? It was hair. <sighs> so what the dog had drug into the yard was indeed a skull. And Lisa and her father, like you just said, they then began thinking, okay, that means that hair probably was not a wig. So they got it out of the trash Mm -hmm. and they called law enforcement who came in and they searched the entire property. They actually drained the pond that was on her father's property and they began placing flags in all of the places where bones or other evidence seemed to be scattered. These remains were positively identified as fourth grader Jennifer Short. Mm-hmm. With only about 25% of her remains being recovered. Lisa told Fox 8 News of the sight of those orange marker flags. Quote, it just really rips you apart. It's like, how could she end up here? Right here on our property. And then from then on, she became part of our family. There were flags. You couldn't count how many flags was out there, end quote. Oh, my God. Lisa and her father were very invested in hoping for resolution as to who could have committed such a heinous crime. And in the years since, Lisa's father has passed, but he had never stopped hoping for answers. Lisa recalled, quote, he had hoped before he passed away that they would find out who had done this. We always discussed it, went over scenarios, especially how did this little girl get from Virginia to here? Why did she end up here? End quote. 
And I wonder if she... Did they ever find the rest of her remains before I asked this question? No. So, I mean, she could have been dragged, those bones, by a wild animal. Mm-hmm. Her remains could be anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, so her remains are found about 30 miles away from her home. So it's not that that far away. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I think the the scattering could have been... Mm-hmm. From wild animals. Animal related. Mm-hmm. The majority of the remains that were found were located beneath that bridge in Stoneville, North Carolina, that now actually bears Jennifer's name. It's called the Jennifer Short Memorial Bridge. While her remains were scattered and decomposed, law enforcement could determine that Jennifer had also been shot once in the head. But I'm assuming not in her home, correct? Because there was no evidence of that. So she had been, I wonder how long she had been alive before she was killed. And I think that's the big question. So there wasn't a 22 shell casing found in the home or blood spatter in her bedroom or anything like that. So, of course, you know, finding her with the same injuries as her parents, yet such a distance away, makes me wonder why she was even taken from the scene in the first place, rather than... Mm -hmm. You know, having been killed along with her parents in the home. Because that's that's odd that that happened if if the intent mm-hmm. was to kill her and in the same way. But All I, along, yeah. I will add here that law enforcement have also been very vague in this regard as to whether Jennifer had been killed here at, at this place in Stoneville, North Carolina, near the bridge, or had actually been killed elsewhere and then brought there. They've been very vague on whether they know the answer to that question. And then, you know, was the crime committed by someone with ties to both of those places? Or was this from one, someone from North or South Carolina even, but with links to the Short family? And that's why, you know, we're going South. But with, so with Jennifer's body discovered 30 miles away, there are just many more questions now. Mm-hmm. It was after the discovery of Jennifer's body that law enforcement did openly announce that they had checked if Michael Short were Jennifer's biological father because of a rumor that was circulating. And they did verify that Michael Short was, in fact, her father. Now, the reason that they had not publicly made that announcement at the time that they themselves knew the answer was because of the theory that Jennifer might still be alive somewhere. So they're thinking, okay, if she had been abducted by someone who at least believed he was her biological father, then he might not harm her thinking, oh, this is my child. Oh, yeah. But then if, if he found the truth Exactly. Out. Yeah. If he found out the truth that she wasn't his, then he might do her harm, which is why they kept, that's why I said very calculated and strategic in what information they're giving out. And mm-hmm. it, so it wasn't until police knew that, you know, no further harm could come to sweet Jennifer that they made the announcement public. In addition, another search of the creek was uh, conducted where her remains were discovered, and that was done in July 2003. They were able to collect more evidence, but we don't know what nor how much. However, in September, 
Jennifer's body also was exhumed for forensic testing and then reburied Mm. the next day. And law enforcement have given no further details as to the evidence that they found nor to the purpose of that forensic testing. So I have no idea why they even did Mm. that. In terms of who could have committed this crime, Maggie, we do have some theories. Some of them are shorter. Some of them are longer. So here we go. Number one, the first person I will bring up is Chris Thompson, because that is Michael Short's worker. He was the last one that we can mm -hmm, verify saw them alive. And, of course, he's the one who discovers the crime scene. However, and this is a very short theory, police have indicated that he has fully cooperated in the investigation and he has never been named a suspect or even a person of interest. You know, I never got like a weird feeling about him or a weird vibe. I know he was only mentioned very shortly, but mm-hmm. usually you and I are kind of quick We're like, to pick up on those yeah. weird feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The next one that I'm going to mention is the name most commonly associated with this case when suspects are discussed, Garrison Bowman. He was in his 60s at the time. It was actually Bowman's landlord who put Bowman on the radar for law enforcement. His landlord told police that on August 13th, only two days before the murder, that he had seen Bowman holding a gun, that on the 14th, he didn't see Bowman all day, and that Bowman's trailer was gone, as in his mobile home. And he Hmm. told police that he had additionally witnessed Bowman building a false bottom on his van. Okay. The landlord said that on the 13th, so again, two days before the murder, that Bowman had been talking about having paid a Virginia man, and remember the shorts live in Virginia, to move Mm. his mobile home. And remember what does Martin Short, yeah, owns a mobile home moving company, but that some he was having some sort of trouble in getting the man to actually do it and had commented to the landlord that he would, quote, have to kill the man, end quote, if he didn't do the job he was paid to do or if the man didn't give Bowman his money back. You know, that's a little extreme. Anthony and I have been trying to get in touch with the CPA for like two weeks and we're playing phone tag, but never once I've been really frustrated, but never once have I been like, if he doesn't return my call, that's it. Right, right. So these, I mean, this is what the landlord is coming to law enforcement and saying. We also know that Bowman had moved to Canada the day after the murders and that his quote-unquote missing mobile home that his landlord brought up where he said, well, all of a sudden his mobile home disappeared, was actually found on a friend's property only about a mile away from where Jennifer's remains were discovered. Okay. Too many things here. Too many things. For there are a lot. When, in the wrong direction. Yes. When police were given this information from the landlord, the property was searched for evidence and they actually found a map that several sources stated 
had an X on it marked right on the location of the short family (gasps) home. There were even men, Timothy Sampson and Jerry Mills, who came forward to say that they had seen Bowman leaving the short family home carrying a young girl. Wow. For what it's worth, though, there are people, even short family members, who believe that Bowman is innocent. And I'll get into why here in just a second. Michael's sister, Carolyn, stated, quote, I just don't see him having anything to do with it. Never have thought that. I always say that if he didn't do it, he's got to forgive everyone that accused him of it. But I never accused him because I didn't think that, end quote. And here are the reasons why many people say that Bowman is innocent. Bowman, as well as his friends, actually had reasons to explain the things that were said of him. Friends told police that Bowman had actually been planning on moving to Canada for years. He'd actually visited there many times because he was just getting ready to retire. He's in his 60s. This is finally that move to Canada. For retirement, and that the mobile home had been moved to a friend's property because someone from Michigan had offered to buy it, and the friend whose property it was on told Bowman that, hey, you can keep your mobile home on my property until the new owner can come down and get it. So there's an explanation for that. Still others who knew Bowman said that he was too much of an alcoholic to have ever committed such a crime. They said, we've never seen him, first of all, be violent. And because he is such an alcoholic, he definitely wouldn't have been able to commit such a crime without leaving evidence behind. Like, it would not have been as clean. We've talked about, you know, coincidences Mm -hmm. before on on the show. I mean, all of that could be true, and I'm not saying that it isn't, but that's just so many coincidences. Uh, well. I feel like he has to have rotten luck that there's that many coincidences right. that kind of align with the murder of this entire family. Well, and I'm going to give you a few more details, and then we'll see how you feel at the end of it. So, Bowman did appear before a grand jury in Roanoke, Virginia, on November 12th, 2002, concerning the Short family murder, but no indictment followed. There was not enough evidence to charge Bowman with anything related to the crime. Plus, and I just keep going back to, if that landlord is right, right, if the landlord's telling the truth about everything, and Bowman felt like he had been swindled out of money by Michael Short, then why would he not have stolen the money that was laying on the counter when he's in the home? And I don't know how expensive it is to move a mobile home. How much money was he out? Was it around the $600 and then therefore it would have just made sense to steal the money? Or is this like thousands of dollars and he feels the only way he can get his justice is by killing this family? Which I think just seems, like I said, very extreme. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I will, I'm not sure in terms of the cost, but I still feel like 
I don't know, if there's really this focus on him being out money, then I feel like he would have also taken the money if it were him. Mm -hmm. In 2005, attention shifted away from Bowman, finally, when the U.S. attorney announced that Timothy Sampson, Jerry Mills, and another man, Tony Epperson, had lied to them in implicating Bowman in the case. They had just done it because they wanted to earn the reward money. Oh. So Mm. they are convicted of perjury. So these men who said, oh, yeah, we saw him leaving the short family home carrying a little girl. They lied. So think of all the time and resources that had been spent on investigating Bowman. Money wasted. Because of what these witnesses told. Quote, unquote, witnesses. And the emotions of of the family. Mm -hmm. In 2007, law enforcement made the announcement that Bowman was no longer a suspect. So just like Thompson, Michael Short's worker, Bowman has also cooperated with law enforcement the whole time. In fact, a friend of his actually mentioned to Bowman, he said, hey, I'm seeing all these news reports that police are actually looking for you. Right. And of course, we know it's because of those details that were given by the landlord. And they're saying they're looking for you in connection to this murder case. And it was actually Bowman who contacted the police himself. So he's like, oh, they're looking Hmm. for me. Let me call them, you know? Yeah, I don't think if you were guilty, you would do that. I don't think so either. And he indicated that he didn't even know who Martin Short was and that the only person that he had recently had any beef with was his landlord. Oh, yeah. So that means means it could have been lies as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bowman said that none of the conversations that his landlord detailed to police had actually happened. He stated that he had never been seen with a gun because he didn't own a gun. The police were able to confirm that there was no false bottom that was built in his van. And as to why his landlord may have made up these accusations, one reason that Bowman gave was that since he had leased the land that his mobile home had set on, and he had leased it for like Mm -hmm. 20 years, that when he told his landlord that he was moving to Canada and that he wasn't taking the mobile home, that his landlord had assumed that he would just inherit Bowman's mobile home. But Bowman wanted to sell it. And sell it to somebody out of state, which leads us back to the detail of storing it on a friend's land until the buyer could come and get it, right? And all of that. Mm -hmm. And that X that was on the map, it was actually confirmed that the X that was on the map was drawn over a spot that was several miles away from the short home and not directly on it. So there's that theory. Theory number three is that whoever committed this crime was someone linked to Michael who had a business beef with him and maybe even someone, one of his connections in South Carolina where they were thinking about moving. And the reason I say this is because FBI must have at least thought that this theory was a remote possibility since in May 2010, several agents went to multiple cities along the South Carolina coast, so Bennettsville, Conway, Florence, and Myrtle Beach, to interview several individuals about their interactions with Michael Short, who had just been in all of those cities in the weeks before his murder as, you know, potential cities for his family to plant new roots. 
In this theory, it's likely that whomever had committed the crime maybe didn't know of Jennifer, and so she was potentially abducted because a perpetrator, you know, as of yet, couldn't figure out what to do with her. What to do? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then, I don't know about this one. Because, again, we, as we said in the beginning, why not then just come into the garage you know, where Kill Michael yeah, Michael's leave. easily accessible and then, yeah, just leave. I don't know. Theory four, there were thoughts that the killer might have been a random person. So the home had, uh. yeah, which is super scary. The home had been put on the market and there had been at least one open house allowing someone to come into the home to know the layout, and maybe even see family photos on display and things like that before making the decision to kill. Okay, so I at first was like, oh, no, it's not going to be this one, the random killer. Mm-hmm. But I had forgotten about the open houses mm-hmm. because, you know, in my mind, I was like, it's not going to be somebody random because, you know, they knew where the phone wires were right. to cut. And things like that. But if they were there for the open house, potentially mm-hmm. a couple times, because mm-hmm. Anthony and I saw a house a few times, then they could learn the layout of the Oh, home. yeah. And know where the phones are. Mm-hmm. And all of that. You know, so it, that could be it. Or, I mean, it could have, I guess, potentially been someone who saw the opportunity just with the garage doors open, saw the opportunity to commit a crime. Mm-hmm. But... My pause with this theory is, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, an impulse kill. So an opportunistic crime like that, like, oh, the garage door's open. You know, this will be the perfect crime. That doesn't jive with the cutting of the phone lines because one is impulsive and the other is very calculated. And so it also doesn't fit with leaving cash on the counter. Because I feel like it would be an impulsive thing to go ahead and grab the cash. Yeah. Unless, you know, they go to the open house. Sort of like the case you talked about in the Patreon episode for December. Like, what if they weren't planning on killing, but they go to an open house and they just kind of have that impulse. And then they go back and kind of learn the layout of the house. So then it really isn't as impulsive because right. it's more calculated at that yeah, point. Yeah, it could be. Theory five, Mary's stalker. Mm. Around 1992, so about 10 years before the crime, Mary had worked as a seamstress at the Pluma Inc. plant. And while an employee there, there were several times that a man showed up at the plant looking for Mary. And on each of those occasions, he was asked to leave. On one of those attempts, the man had actually managed to enter the plant itself and was escorted out by a plant manager. However, when she was asked if she wanted to press charges against the man, Mary declined and she had never filed a restraining order against this man. So whoever this man was, her coworkers didn't recognize him and they knew her husband, Michael, And we know that this man desperately wanted to see her. So many people thought that because Jennifer was born in 1993, 
that that was the reason the rumor began that Michael might not be Jennifer's biological father. Uh... But despite searches and even releasing pictures of Mary back in the day to jog people's memories, no one seems to know the name of this man. So that's kind of where this theory ends. Theory number six, a serial killer. In 2005, there was a similar case to the short family murders. Many people do, I'll go ahead and tell you, discount this theory because it took place in Idaho, which is a far cry from Virginia. But Mm -hmm. in that case, a man named Joseph Edward Duncan III, dare I say, a three-namer, a three-namer, killed the parents of the Groney family as well as the older brother, and abducted the two youngest children, a little girl and a little boy. And the little boy was eventually shot in the head. And Duncan then took Mm. the little girl, Shasta Groney, to a diner where he was actually recognized by the waitress who called the police. And that's how he was arrested. Duncan did also later confess to other murders. And he was a free man at the time of the short family murders, though he had just actually served time for rape. However, we don't know if he has ties to Virginia. Well, similar, but the distance. Well, I mean, but there are serial killers that travel mm-hmm. the whole United States. Oh, yeah. So I guess Israel distance keys. really doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. And then the final theory, theory number seven, is someone else targeting Jennifer. So after the initial investigation into a connection with the parents, investigators later took a completely different path and began looking into potential connections with Jennifer. And the investigation into the Short Family's case was actually reopened in 2021. And the task force was made up of individuals from the Henry County Sheriff's Office, state police from Virginia, the Rockingham County Sheriff's Office, where Jennifer's body was discovered, the North Carolina State Police, the FBI office out of Lynchburg, Virginia, and someone from the U.S. Attorney's Office. And this new task force, yeah, they picked up where a previous investigation had left off in 2015 with re-interviewing Jennifer's classmates to see if they remembered anything or anyone hanging around them or at the school at the time. But here's the problem. These questions weren't asked at the time of the crime. They're being asked years later after memories have faded. Yeah, because how old are these kids by that point? Oh, yeah. She was in fourth grade when? In 2002. And now we're in 2015 when these people are being questioned. Now, most who do believe this theory, that it did have something to do with Jennifer, they say, just like you did, Maggie, earlier, that it only makes sense that Jennifer was the motivation behind the crime. And the proof of that is the fact that she was the only one who was abducted. But like I said, with so much time having passed, it's hard to know. And this wasn't the first time that police had held back information from the public or waited to release key details. For example, it was seven years after the murder in 2009 
that the FBI released sketches of a white 1998 to 2002 single cab flatbed truck that had been sighted in the area at the time and a sketch of the man seen in that truck. A man who looked to be in his 40s with a quote-unquote weathered look. So Hmm. they don't release it right after the murders to say, have you seen this truck or have you seen this man? Seven years after the murder. I wonder why. Well, here's what they said was, they were asked what their reason was for waiting so long. And an FBI special agent who actually asked for his identity to be confidential said, quote, I'll say that there was a specific reason why that we released it at that point in time. And I can't go into detail why those sketches were released at that point in time, end quote. Hmm. So he's saying there's a reason. I just can't tell you what it is. I can't tell you why. But Maggie, either the man in the sketch was the perpetrator or was a potential key witness. So important to the investigation, no matter how you look at it. Right. Now, Maggie, I've attached the sketch so you can look at it and let me know what you think. If you want to scroll down and look in Sleuth Hounds, I will post it for you on the Monday following this episode. What do you hmm. think about this sketch? I think he, this would be a person that most people could say they've seen in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. It's not you know anything super distinguishing about him he does have kind of a wide nose and very i don't know just very average looking yeah i there's nothing definitely looks like someone who maybe does more blue collar work than white collar work and i'm just getting that based off this hat the hat that he's wearing so that could be totally wrong but yeah nothing distinguishing Mm -mm. about this dude no extremely extremely vague look Also vague, even now, when asked about what evidence was collected from the Short family home and the motive for the crime, that same special agent told Fox 8 News this, quote, divulging certain things at certain times, that's part of the investigation, and we just can't comment on on what we've done in the investigation because it could affect it, end quote. I know there's not a lot to support the random person theory or the stalker theory, but at least those theories to me would explain someone who locals wouldn't recognize and would need then to provide a sketch to police about. Because remember, this is a small community. So if the perpetrator were a local Mm -hmm. person, then there wouldn't be a need for a sketch. Instead, they would be like, oh, I saw Tim there. You know what I mean? So that tells me that It's not someone who locals have seen before because of the need to create a sketch. Yeah. So it could potentially be someone that Michael ran into on that route along the Mm -hmm, coast. mm -hmm. Or someone staying in that creepy motel. Uh, Exactly. 
While so much is still up in the air, at least everyone is hopeful that all the additional precautions that were originally taken to collect as much potential DNA as possible will finally pay off. Henry County Sheriff's Office was the recipient of a recent grant awarded by the U.S. Department of Justice Sexual Assault Kit Initiative that allows them the financial ability to conduct advanced genetic testing in the short family case. Current Henry County Sheriff Lane Perry told Jackie Pascal of WXII12.com, quote, that day at the crime scene, if it was even thought that it had evidentiary value, it was collected. With that grant, if there is a piece of evidence that wasn't tested, it will have testing. And if it doesn't have the most current methods, it'll be tested again. Any advancement that could possibly break something will be done, end quote. Now, I'm going to point out to you something that you probably already heard me say, that the funding was from the Sexual Assault Kit Initiative. Yeah, that makes me question some things. Mm -hmm. While there have been no established reports of sexual assault on Jennifer, Henry County Sheriff's Office Captain Wayne Davis told Justin Melrose of WFXR-TV that any time a child's abduction occurs, it's a conclusion that must be ruled out. So with the potential mm-hmm. evidence of the new DNA testing, Sheriff Perry told a reporter, quote, there's a part where we want to say that we feel we're close, but there's being close to actually getting a warrant, but we know the warrant is not the end of it, end quote. So taking everything we know, I want to also provide this insight. Perry, the sheriff, additionally told WGHP, quote, we do have people that this is focused around. We are not at liberty to say who, but yes, we do have things that point us in the directions with people, and we are working those leads and have worked them in the past. End quote. Similarly, but with a couple of minute added details, Perry told WFMY News 2, quote, when we went back, it probably opened the case up a little bit, and there was probably a name or two that was put back in a really tight pool of people as a suspect that may not have had that true light on them before, end quote. Interesting. Yeah, those are super interesting statements to me because it it almost seems to preclude any new or as yet unidentified suspects, right? It seems to indicate Mm -hmm. that one of the previous theories actually put them on the right track, right? Right. He said things like, you know, we're working those leads and we have worked them in the past. So then I'm thinking, okay, well, it's going to be one of those that they've already looked at. But then he says, we actually put some names back in and maybe some people who we Mm -hmm. didn't fully investigate before. Could potentially be someone we need to investigate. Right. So before I ask your thoughts, I wanted to share one final detail because... We still do not know if this detail I'm going to tell you is related to the murder investigation or not. But on February 20th, 2019, firefighters were called to the scene at a property that had been abandoned for almost two decades. 
It didn't have electricity, nor any utilities turned on, which reminded me of the Brooklyn Farthing case, but it was Mm -hmm. ablaze. The home, which had been purchased for renovation about 10 years earlier, but had never been fixed up, was for all intents and purposes destroyed by the fire. That property had been the short family home. And fire marshals were not able to figure out what caused the fire and whether the fire was truly an accident or whether it was intentionally set to destroy even more evidence. Michael's sister Carolyn told WDBJ7, quote, How does a house catch on fire? We didn't have a storm. There was no electricity in the house for months. They've cleaned it up quickly. So it seems to me that something is trying to be hid, end quote. But hidden by whom? So Maggie, what are your thoughts? Initially, I was kind of leaning toward the maybe random person who had been in their house enough that it wasn't completely random. Mm Mm-hmm. I do think that Jennifer is at the center of this whole thing mm-hmm. because I think if it was something against the parents, then they would have just killed all three of them in the house. I don't know why Jennifer was taken. So I feel like she has to be at the center of this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Now, though, I'm wondering if maybe it was one of those other theories that we just kind of dismissed And was like, no, maybe that's not it, you know, because those final quotes got me thinking that maybe it was someone that we blew off Mm -hmm. and that investigators kind of blew off. Well, I think you could be right because they've been so tight lipped about things. They could have evidence that actually implicates one of those people who, like you said, we just kind of brushed off, but now maybe deserves a closer look. Mm hmm. The dedication from law enforcement in the case is clear. There's even a framed photo of Jennifer Short that sits on Sheriff Lane Perry's desk, just as it had sat on the previous sheriff's desk, a daily reminder that this case still needs resolution. Perry told WFMY News 2, quote, Every day that picture is looked at multiple times a day so that we don't forget that case, end quote. Unfortunately, according to Sheriff Perry, there are certain individuals who he knows have more information than they are currently providing, citing the age-old, I don't want to get involved, as the excuse, as cited in Kim Lee Martin's article for Crime Online. While those individuals don't want to get involved, at least one other very special person did just that, the short's old neighbor, Ray Reynolds. After the case, Reynolds arranged a motorcycle rally to raise money for a reward and to maintain interest and a focus on the case. It's a rally he has organized for the past couple of decades. Now, due to declining health, Reynolds is afraid that this year's rally was his last and that someone else will need to step up to organize the rally. He told Jackie Pascal of WXII 12, quote, I made a promise I'd continue to do this until someone was brought to justice, and it just breaks my heart that this has not been solved. If any of you have kids, love your kids all you can. Just think about what the Short family's been through and what happened to that little girl, end quote. Mm 
Specifically, police are still looking for someone who might be able to provide more information concerning the places in the community that the Shorts frequented and detailed information about their planned move to South Carolina. They're looking for contractors, as well as those in the mobile home industry, who had business dealings with Michael Short or with his business, MS Mobile Home Movers, from January 1st, 2001 until August 15th, 2002. They are also interested in speaking with anyone who saw or worked with Michael or Mary in August of 2002. The Martinsville-Henry County Crime Stoppers are offering a reward of $62,500 for information in this case that leads to an arrest and conviction. Anyone with information regarding the Short family murders is asked to call the Henry County Sheriff's Office at 276-638-8751 or to call Crime Stoppers at 276-632-7400. Six, three. Again, please like and join our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, to continue the conversation and see images related to this episode. As always, follow us on Twitter at Cases Coffee, on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast, or you can always email us suggestions to coffeeandcasespodcast at gmail.com. Please tell your friends about our podcast so more people can be reached to possibly help bring some closure to these families. Don't forget to rate our show and leave us a comment as well. We hope to hear from you soon. Stay together. Stay safe. We'll We'll see see you you next next week. with maggie and allison and to kick this off notes are going out to jody vera tegan larissa and shelly for reaching out to us or recommending us on social media this past week we love hearing from you and can't wait to see pictures of our sleuth hounds and our merch for those of you who have already purchased so purchased it so love is going out to all of you as well and i don't want to say those names on here because i don't want it to ruin any potential surprise christmas gifts the deadline has already passed if you wanted merch in time for Christmas, but the merch shop is still staying open. So when you feel the need to show our podcast some love, you know, give it right back to us. You can just head on over to the Etsy shop, which is etsy.com slash shop slash coffee and cases pod. Make sure you capitalize the CNCP part mm-hmm. so that it takes you to the right place. That's right. We have extra love going out to JPSP underscore GA who gave us a five-star written review saying, quote, these ladies are so real. It seems like a conversation with friends. Even more, their intros are quite thoughtful and captivating. And the icing on the cake, it's not the same old cases done by every other podcast. I've been an avid true crime podcast fan for a while, and many of their cases are new to me. My new favorite, end quote. That was so sweet and a review that I definitely needed to read. So thank you so much for posting that one. Yes. Plus some love, love, and extra love to the three new patrons that joined Patreon Mm -hmm. in the last week. We love that. Yes, so Leah, Leslie, and Meredith. 
we're thankful that you took our advice to head on over and join Patreon before the year ends to lock in that cheap price of just $5 a month. Mm-hmm. And if you join at the $12, $15, or $20 level this month and you stay there through February, then you will get in on the next round of swag boxes that are going out around Valentine's Day. Mm-hmm. And if you have been considering giving Patreon a try, check us out before the month is over. If you like what you hear, then you can stay on that $5 a month plan. You have locked that in. If you don't, you can take advantage of the access until January and then just cancel it. Mm-hmm. But we know you'll love listening to it as much as we love making all those Absolutely. for you guys. Because we do have a really good time doing mm-hmm. that. Lots of laughs over there. And with that, all of our love is going out to each and every one of you. Until next week, Sleuthhounds. Looking for a new podcast to keep you entertained because you are all caught up on coffee and cases? Check out TZ Borden and his podcast, Tapes from the Dark Side. The podcast is organized into seasons with one case per season and four seasons already there for you to binge. Now is the perfect time to check out the pod. You will not regret it. Check it out. And if you like what you hear, which we obviously know you will leave a five-star review and let TZ know that Allison and I sent you. Here's a little bit about the show from the host himself. You know, those dads who literally never sit down. That was Danny. He constantly was doing something either for them or with them. Hashtag girl dad. Totally. We hope to one day have a son, which was taken from us. If you make a mistake, there's a very severe possibility you're both going to get shot. Do you understand that? Yes. Wanted to do our best to secure, make sure everybody was safe. So we started making verbal commands. Shut up. You listen, you obey. You started screaming. I would describe as yelling very loudly. Please do not shoot me. Then listen to my instructions. I'm trying to do it. Don't talk. Listen. He's crawling towards the police, crying, please, please don't shoot me. The officer shot him five times. Christ, they murdered that guy. In and he gets, blood. he got off. In he got blood. off. They, they murdered, they, they killed this guy. I mean, it looks, it looks a lot like murder. Cop who killed, fired from the force, is now getting paid, collecting a taxpayer-funded check every month for the rest of his life. She received a phone call from her eight-year-old school. She tried choking herself while she was at school and told her friend that she wanted to die. I lost everything in my life. Mesa's watching every single video on here, so I want to make this message very clear to them. I am not going to stop fighting until my husband gets justice. You didn't realize who you were messing with when you killed Daniel Shaver. I am Lainey Sweet, I'm his wife, and I will not stop fighting. You just listened to the trailer for the new season of my podcast, Tapes from the Dark Side. The execution of Daniel Shaver is the investigation into the 2016 police shooting of an unarmed man. It's often described as the most disturbing police shooting ever caught on tape. This multi-part series will examine the depravity of the Mesa Police Department's actions that night and the ensuing corruption that is still ongoing to this day. This is Tapes from the Dark Side.
The Execution of Daniel Shaver. Available now on Apple, Spotify, and all podcast apps. Subscribe today. Just search Tapes from the Dark Side. <laughs>